There are many things that pique my interest, sports not being the least among them, um, but hopefully not the greatest either. But one of the things that also piques my interest is uh, infomercials. I don't know what it is about them, but I just like watching them. I love to see how they demonize the classic kitchen appliances. You know what I'm talking about? They, they have it all in black and white, and the kitchens are a mess, and the, uh, the, usually the, the mother of the house is in a wreck. Her, her hair's all messed up and things. But then when their appliance comes along, it's all in perfect color. The kitchen's in beautiful condition, and they've just got this one appliance out there on the counter instead of all these other dirty pots and pans. One of the ones that I especially like to watch uh, that I've seen recently is the GT Express 101. It's a two-sided grill. And uh, I love how you can just store your leftovers in there and come out with a gourmet meal that you otherwise wouldn't have had. Um, it's amazing to me that, that, that those appliances can, can make such small portions you know, they, they, they have the little taste tester guy standing there the whole time, and, and he grabs that little thing out of there, and he takes a little nibble on it, and that was it. Wow, that was really appetizing. Thank you. Like, I'm so full. Um, I just watch those infomercials for, for hours. But, but other times, I, uh, they don't pique my interest at all. And, uh, and that perhaps could be because I have other things on my mind or because there's something... Uh, some sporting event that I may want to watch or, or something like that. But um, I'm afraid that as Christians, we treat God the same way sometimes. That at various times in our lives, our interest is peaked. And we want to be near God. We want to see what's going on with Him. And those times seem to be in times of difficulty, in times of trial, in times when there's no answer. Or when we have a, a specific issue coming up at work or, or in our home. But most of the time, they're simply just not that appealing. We could have it or not, we could have God or not have Him, just like the infomercials. You know, I could worship God this Sunday or I could not worship Him. It doesn't really matter to me a whole lot. And so we often make excuses for not being a part of godly interaction. And what I mean by that is that we're not taking part in the corporate worship of God. It doesn't really matter. It's not that big of a deal. And it's no wonder that we often come away from spending time at a church service feeling empty, feeling as if nothing really happened there. I just filled up an hour of my time. And the problem, I think, is that we have failed to see God for who He is. That we have failed to worship Him as the God of the universe, as He deserves and demands to be worshipped. And I hope that this morning, that you see God for who He is. Revelation chapter 4 is where we will be. And what we're going to see this morning is that God deserves and demands worship. That we stand. When we stand in the presence of the sovereign, glorious, and majestic God, we can't help but worship Him. 
And so the antithesis to that is that the reason that we fail to worship God is because we're not standing in the presence of God. We, we haven't actually been in God's presence. And I'll tell you how we can do that in this lifetime. Let me begin by reading the entire chapter so you can see what John is, is talking about here. Let me just give you a little background before we start. The, this, we have looked at the things that are for John and the things that have been. Okay, So the things that are in the past. Now, John moves from chapter 4 till the end of the book of Revelation to talk about the things that will be, or as Revelation 1.19 says, the things that soon must take place. So these things are still future for us. And so John now is transported from the island of Patmos where he is incarcerated and he's transported through a vision to be able to see the glorious God and the Lamb. We'll see Him next week. But today we're going to look at God the Father. So what we're, this is really the setting for the judgments that are about to take place. Remember, much of Revelation is about the judgments, the tribulation judgments, the seven-year period where God judges those who have opposed Him. And these two chapters, chapters 4 and 5, we'll look at 4 this week, 5 next week, these two chapters really are the setting or the backdrop for what's going to happen in these judgments. We're able to see the glorious God and the glorious Christ, see that they are true and right in their judgments, and then the judgments come. Alright, so let's look at God the Father in His glory, chapter 4, Revelation. Begin with verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones. And upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night... They do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things, and because of Your will they existed and were created. 
When we stand in the presence of the sovereign, glorious, and majestic God, we cannot help but worship Him. In verses 1-8, through we see John standing in the presence of the sovereign, glorious, and majestic God. The passage begins with an invitation to to John in verses 1 and 2. And the speaker seems to be Christ, although His name is not mentioned. Look at verse 1 again. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, notice, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said... Turn back to chapter 1 with me, and I'll show you why I think this is Christ speaking to Him. Chapter 1, verse 10. And notice very similar language to what we have in chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 10 says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying. And then in verses 11 through 20, we find out about this glorious Christ. Okay, And if you have a red letter edition Bible where all of Christ's letters are in red, you'll notice that you'll see towards the end of this chapter, chapter 1, and even in verse 11, you have Christ's words there. So, uh, and the reason that we know that is not just because the letters are read, it's because of His description in verses 12 through 17. We talked about this uh, when we studied through chapter 1. And those descriptions describe Him him as, as the one who stands among the golden lampstands, the one who stands among the churches, he knows what's going on in each of the churches, and he he um, he, he makes sure that it, he makes sure that everything is in order. So turn back to chapter four because this is Christ speaking with John, and he invites him to come up here because he wants to show him. Notice at the end of verse one, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Now. Uh, in my Bible, these letters are actually in black, so the translators here do not think that these are Christ's words. But for the reasons that I had just said, I believe that these are Christ's words. The thing that Christ wants to show him is the things that must soon take place. That comes directly from chapter 1, verse 19. Jesus says, here, write down, John, the things which are, the things which have been, and the things which must soon take place. This is what I was talking about earlier. John was going to talk about uh, what had happened in his vision. That's chapter 1. Then chapters 2 and 3, what the things that are. That's what's going on in the church even now in our day. Jesus shows what's going on in the church and, and how they have not followed Him and so on. And then verses chapters 4 through 22 is the things which must soon take place. So this is the beginning of it. John in a vision is transported to heaven to see all these things as an eyewitness. And, um, and I would suggest to you that this is not the rapture. okay? Because remember who he's talking to. Look at the, the middle of verse 4. Like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me. John's talking about himself. He's not saying this is where all believers are going to be raptured to heaven. Although, this is uh, if you think about it in the... <clears throat> As far as what John is talking about in chapters 4 through 22, that is actually where the rapture will occur. But we can't say that John is intending that. He's simply saying what happened to him. Now, the main focus of this passage, perhaps you noticed, is the throne of God. 
The throne of God is mentioned 11 times. And the word throne is actually mentioned 13 times. The other two refer to the thrones of the 24 elders. And so this passage really is about God. The fact that He is sitting on His throne, we're going to see that He's actually called that, the one who sits on the throne. The fact that He's sitting does not mean that He is inactive or that His work is done but rather that He is like we would see a king on a throne. What does that mean? It means that He is the sovereign ruler over His land. So what does that mean? That God is sitting on His throne. The throne of the entire universe. It means that He is the sovereign ruler over all the universe. So that's why the focus of this is God and His reign And this should not surprise us. Psalm chapter 47, verse 8 says, God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. When you read Isaiah chapter 6 and Ezekiel 1, similarly had visions. They see God as the King on the throne. So we should recognize that God is, while He is everywhere present, He is, remember, He's spirit. So He is also seen in His glory on His throne as the ruler overall. Now, why do I call the one who is sitting on the throne God the Father? Why is this not Jesus Christ? Why is this not the Son? Notice what God is called in verse 8. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings and full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. So in verse 8 and in verse 11, he's called the Lord God. Here in verse 8, he's called the Lord God, the Almighty. Okay, And if you know your Old Testament, you know that those words are generally, uh, those are generally used for God the Father. In fact, in the New Testament, they are, in the Old Testament, they're always used for God the Father. In the New Testament, they're often used for God the Father. The only time when they're not is to show that Jesus is God. Okay, not, uh, not that this is Christ here. So I would suggest to you that this is God the Father sitting on the throne. The second reason I say that this is God the Father, turn to chapter 5, verse 6, and I'll show you the next event that happens after our passage. Okay, this is where they try to determine who's going to open this book with all these seals and bring these judgments. And verse 6 reads, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures... Okay, this is the throne we're talking about in chapter 4. We're trying to find who's sitting on this throne. I saw between the throne and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. Who is that lamb who's standing as if slain? Does anyone know? It's Christ. Okay, we're going to find out his identity later because in verse 9 of chapter 5 it says, Worthy are you to take the books, for you were slain... Your blood purchased the men of every people, tribe, kindred, tongue, and nation, or at least uh, was adequate enough to do so. So we know that this is Christ. In fact, he's called in verse 5, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, that is Jesus Christ. So if between the throne and the 24 thrones is this Lamb standing, then that cannot be Christ also sitting on the throne. Okay, That is God the Father. And we know that this is God the Father further. Look at verse 13 of chapter 5. 
Look at the end of the verse, the praise that comes from every created thing. To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Here we clearly see them distinguished as two separate persons. That God the Father is the one who sits on the throne and we praise the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Okay, So they're, they're two separate. And so God here in Revelation is often described as the one who sits on the throne. And I believe the purpose for that is because we need to see that God is sovereign. That He is in control of all things. That no one can usurp His authority. No, can, no one can overthrow Him. Even if everyone in the world tried to overpower Him. Even if all the demons and Satan himself, they could not overthrow the God of the universe. So we see God as sovereign. Secondly, we see God as glorious. Verse 3 of chapter 4. And he who was sitting like a jasper stone of sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Now this, for John, is very difficult to describe. Remember, no one can see God at any time. 1 Timothy 6.16 So this isn't God in a physical form. This is actually the glory of God. You remember in the Old Testament when the people of Israel were being led out of Egypt? How were they led? Was it by a physical person walking? It was by a glory cloud during the day and a pillar of fire by night. See, God has to come in, in some sort of appearance because He is spirit. So for John to, to see God the Father sitting on the throne, what did he see? Well, he explains to you what he saw. He saw these brilliant colors. He saw jasper. Now, jasper is probably not this opaque or pale red yellow or green stone like we think of it today. It's probably more like a diamond. We don't have time to turn to chapter 21, verse 11, but it's actually called a crystal clear jasper. It's probably more like a diamond that he is seeing. And he's also seeing this color of sardius, which is a bright red ruby stone, and an emerald rainbow. So it's probably not like a rainbow like we see with all the different colors, but rather different shades of green that surround the throne. So there's this, this bright, glowing, beautiful colors coming from the throne of God. And that is the display of God's glory. Listen to how God's glory is explained in other parts of Scripture. In 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 19, He is seen with the hosts of heaven standing around Him. Isaiah 6.1, He sits on the throne with the train of His robe filling the temple. Ezekiel 1.26, Over their heads, that is the four living creatures, there was something resembling a throne like lapis lazuli in appearance. And on that which assembled, resembled the throne, high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. When people come before the throne of God, they don't see God Himself. They see His glory. And this is what John sees. God, John sees God in His glory. And so his, his goal is not to describe the physical features of God because God's not a physical, God the Father is not a physical being. But He is glorious. John sees Him there and recognize, recognizes Him for who He is. Thirdly, we see that God is majestic in verses 4 through 8. And the reason I say that is because of the people or, or the the uh, beings that are around the throne. 
First, in verse 4, we see these 24 elders. Now, what did I say the purpose of God's throne was? What, what was it to show us? It was to show that He is ruler over all. So what does that suggest about these 24 thrones around His throne? It doesn't mean that they're ruler over all, but in some sense they have some leadership. That these 24 elders rule in some way. And understanding the purpose of these thrones will help us to determine who these 24 elders are. And I think this is um, a much debated uh, topic, whether these are angels or humans. And uh, I'll try to just go through these quickly. Some believe that these 24 elders are angels. Um, they would argue from chapter 5, verses 8 through 10, and they would say that, that they're talking about redemption as if it belongs to someone else. So why would, why would believers, if these are believers, why would believers talk about redemption in that way? Others believe that these are, these are people who believed in God. Some believe that they are priests, like Old Testament priests. There were 24 of them in 1 Chronicles chapter 24. Um, others who think that these are humans believe that they're representative of the Old Testament and the New Testament. So you have 24 thrones. 12 would be for the 12 apostles. Who do you think the other 12 would be for? For the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? So that's how they take it. Um, but I would actually argue that this is referring to church saints only. A okay, church saints only. That is, leaders or representatives of the church of Jesus Christ. And the reason I say that is because Old Testament saints are not glorified at this time. They are not crowned. They are not uh, finally saved in that sense. They have been transported to heaven, but they're not saved in the sense that, and glorified in the sense that believers are, which happens after the judgment seat of Christ. And I say believers, I mean New Testament believers. That is, church saints. The second reason why I would say that these are church saints is notice the end of verse 4. Notice what they are wearing. Two things. White garments and golden crowns. Do you remember what I said white garments were referring to in chapter 3, verses 5 and 18? It's referring to the righteousness of the church saints. They were wearing them. They were wearing these robes. Jesus said, you need to buy these white garments from me. Golden crowns are rewards for victory. Um, for 2 Timothy 4.8 says, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to those who have loved His appearing. And I would argue that angels are never said to wear crowns in Scripture. So, because of that, I would suggest to you that these are believers. And so that means that, that these representative believers have been crowned and that the rapture has already taken place at this point in the future. And that these representatives, these elders, are going to have a part in, in, in carrying out the tribulation judgments. That in some sense, they will be rulers over over the people who have opposed God. And they will be ruler over the people who follow God in the Millennial Kingdom. The final reason why I think these are elders is because every time the word elders is used in the Scriptures, 
It always refers to humans, never angels. Okay, so you have elders over the church, which is simply another word for pastor or overseer. And in some sense, these elders are representatives of the church of Christ. So I would suggest that these are our church saints. We see in verse 5 that the Holy Spirit is there as well. Look at the end of the verse. And there, was, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Uh, we don't often hear the Holy Spirit referred to as seven spirits of God as if he's schizophrenic or something. Instead, I think it refers to his completeness, that he is able to go throughout the entire earth and be able to see what's going on, that, that Jesus says to hold him, that, that he has the power, in a sense, over the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is sent out from the Father and the Son. And uh, <clears throat> one of the ways that God accomplishes His purpose on this earth is through the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, we find out more about God's majesty in, in the crystal sea, what's, what's known as the crystal sea here. Out from the throne uh, come flashes of thunder. I'm sorry, verse 6. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass-like crystal. Now, we think of it as a body of water, like it's so clear that it's crystal. But remember, in heaven, chapter 21, verse 1, there is no sea, at least in the new heavens and new earth there isn't. So it's very likely that there's no sea here. Rather, notice what John says here. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass. Remember, John's trying to explain what he sees in heaven in a way that he in, in a way that he's not able to really he doesn't have the perspective to be able to to try to explain to you and to me what what that means and so he often uses the word like in fact in this passage he uses it uh, i think some 14 times so he can't say exactly what it looks like but he says this is what it is like this is what the appearance is and so he says it's like a sea made of crystal. Let me show you why I think this is not a sea. Uh, I'll just read um, a few verses. Revelation 15.2 I saw something like a sea of glass. Okay, same thing. Like a sea of glass. And those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God. What it sounds like to me is that this sea of glass is actually a transparent floor upon which the throne of God sits. John's never seen anything like this before. And so, so he says it looks much like a sea would look if it were made of crystal. But what I think it is is probably some sort of transparent floor. If you want to look further, you look at Exodus 24, 9 and 10. Exodus 24, 9 and 10. And Ezekiel 1, talks about the same crystal sea. In verses 6 through 8, we see these four living creatures. These creatures are probably angels. Um, they are said to be full of eyes. They have face like a lion. They, they have six wings and they cry out, Holy, holy, holy. Doesn't that sound like Isaiah chapter 6? At these... these Seraphim and cherubim were standing around the throne singing, Holy, Holy, Holy. So it's likely that these four living creatures are angels. We'll see their involvement in the judgment 
in the, uh, in the chapters to come. But what I want you to focus on this morning is not only the throne of God, but the response of the creatures. What happens when these creatures, these angels and these 24 elders, see God in all of His sovereignty and His glory and His majesty? The end of verse 8 through the end of the chapter, we see that they can't help but worship Him. Notice the timing of their worship at the end of verse 8. And day and night they do not cease to say. Now this is probably not every single second of every single day. It's probably more like what Paul talked about in 1 Thessalonians 2, 9. That he supported himself night and day. Does that mean that Paul was working all the time? That 24 hours a day he was working? He never did anything with the church? He never slept or anything like that? Of course not. He's saying that he had other responsibilities. And I think the same thing is true with the four living creatures. What you're going to find is that these four living creatures actually help enact God's judgment. Um, But what we should understand is that this is a very regular practice of theirs. That their most consuming practice, when they're not engaged in doing God's bidding, doing the things that God wants them to do, is to worship, to fall down and worship God. And their expression is seen here. Three attributes of God. Verse 8, holy, holy, holy. First of all, His holiness. Secondly, His power. Notice what He calls Him. The Lord God, or these, these four living creatures call Him. The Lord God, the Almighty. He is powerful. And then, thirdly, He is eternal. Who was, and who is, and who is to come. And then verse 9, At the end of the verse, to Him who lives forever and ever. So, what they praise Him for, what you're going to be hearing if you are in heaven for all of eternity, is people and angels praising God for His holiness, for His power, His sovereignty, and for His eternality. The fact that He lives forever and ever. And the the angels are not the only ones who worship God in this way. Notice verses 10 and 11 that the 24 elders follow suit. The 24 elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever. Okay, And when do they fall down? Look at the ver- beginning of verse 9. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, then verse 10, then we could say the 24 elders fall down. So how often do the 24 elders fall down and worship God? We could say day and night. They never stop praising God. That is, whenever they're not doing God's bidding. And the posture of their worship, verse 10, is that they fall down. It is an act of humility to stand before the holy God. And the expression of their worship is seen at the end of verse 10. They cast their crowns before the throne. Charles Ryrie says that crowns demonstrate that uh, the casting of their crowns demonstrates that everything that we have, okay, these are representatives of believers. So I believe this is what we will do when we get our crowns. We stand before the throne of God. We don't take it, show it around to everybody, and look what I got. Look at how many crowns I got and what I did. We will do what these 24 elders did. We will cast our crowns before the feet of God, recognizing that 
We could do nothing apart from Him. We did not earn these on our own. In heaven, we will acknowledge this, this fact. And it's a shame that we don't do so sooner. They were always trying to get credit and claim and, and uh, acclamation for the things that we have done. But when we see God for who He is, we will not be able to help but worship Him in one of the ways we do. All the things that we have done in Your name, God, we cast them before Your feet, recognizing that they could not happen apart from You. Notice what they say in verse 11. Worthy are You, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things, and because of Your will they existed and were created. We can summarize their praise of God for His creation. They praise God that He is the Creator. And I believe that we should follow suit. We should not wait until we get to heaven to bow down and worship God. Do you realize that you were made to worship God? The reason God made you was to worship Him, to give praise to His name. And yet you and I rejected Him. We hated God. We did not want to follow God. We did not want Him to be the King over our lives. We wanted to have our own way. We wanted to be our own God. And maybe you never shook your fist in the face of God and said that to Him. But with your sin, you did that very thing. And as a result of God's holiness, you saw God's holiness here, that He hates sin. As a result, He, he enacts judgment. And so those who do, not, who do not come to God by His means will be judged. That's what this book is about. That judgment is real. God is merciful, yes, but His mercy will not last forever. In other words, His patience will not last forever. His mercy will, will last forever on those who follow Him, but His patience will not be forever. If you have not turned to Christ, if you have not used the means by which God brings people to Himself, Jesus Christ, believing in Him and believing that He is enough, then you need to do that. He will not be patient forever. We are made to worship God, and God deserves to be worshipped. The way that we see God's glory today is not by being transported in a vision up to heaven. That's not going to happen to you today. The way that you see God's glory is through the church. Ephesians 3, verse 20 says, "...to Him who is able to do..." exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations, world without end. The way we see God in His glory today is in Christ's church. It's expressed in a local church seeking to honor God. And so if you want to worship God, if you desire to worship God, then you need to be a part of a local church. And that doesn't mean just sign your name on a list. It means that you need to be a contributing member, a contributing part of a local church. 
What does it mean for us to worship God? How, how do we do this? Okay, I said it's part of our service of worship to give ourselves to a local church, but notice what the four living creatures and the 24 elders do. They simply say to God what God already knows or what is true about God. They praise God for His holiness, His sovereignty, His eternality, His creative ability. So one of the ways that you and I worship God is we simply say back to God what is true about Him. We don't have to come up with magical incantations that only God will accept. We worship God by saying back to Him what is true about Him. And the question that we often ask when we come to church is, what what good is it for me? What can I get out of this service? But that's not the question we should be asking. Rather, what can I offer to the God of the universe? And the very least that we can do is offer our bodies as a living sacrifice if we truly have been transformed by Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And so that means that as a church, worshiping God must be at the center of what we do. So much of our focus is on horizontal things. Was the music satisfactory? Was the offertory or the special music entertaining? Was the, the message like my cheeseburger at lunch, did it hit the right spot? But the true test of whether we worshipped or not is not what we got out of the service, although that is part of it. The true test is whether we obeyed God in our worship. Was He pleased? That's who we're coming to worship, not us. If we were coming to worship ourselves, we would do services differently. Our focus has to be on God. And so that means that all of our service must be done in worship to Him. That we come into His presence and when we do, we can't help but fall down and worship Him. God alone is to be worshipped. He is Creator. He is Ruler over all. And the way that we experience God's presence is through the church. Let's bow for prayer. Father, I pray that You would use the Scripture that has been explained and the words that have been said, the implications and apply them to our hearts. It would do us no good to come here today to hear the Word and to do nothing about it. We would be like a person looking at our face in the mirror, seeing that there's problems and turning and walking away. Help us to respond to Your Word this morning by reflecting more seriously on what You desire for worship. By asking ourselves, as a church, are we worshiping You as You desire? Are we... Are we singing praises to You like You want? Are we giving to You? Are we listening to and responding to Your Word as You desire? Are we simply going through the motions? Lord, You know our hearts. You know we are feeble. We are full of sin. And we are very prone to wander. And so it's very hard for us to, to keep our focus. But we're not saying that as an, as an excuse, but as a means to explain to You that we need You. We, we have to depend upon You, and so we beg for Your mercy. We pray that You'd pour out Your presence, that, that Your presence would be near us, that we would draw near to You so that You would draw near to us. 
so that each one of us, and as a body, we'd be able to experience Your greatness and and the result will be that we not only worship You in what we say and in these services, but in all of our lives. Help us to do that, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.